Welcome to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast, where non-diet nutrition, weight-inclusive care, and integrative health collide. We're your hosts, Dana Montes and Christina Hoyt, licensed integrative clinical nutritionists and body image coaches. And we believe you deserve to have a joyful relationship with food in your body, even if you have a chronic health condition or symptoms that just won't quit. On this show, together and with our guests, we're bringing the real talk, no BS5 with tangible tools to help you pursue health and wellness without obsession or restriction. Remember our disclaimer, this podcast is meant for general information purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. On today's episode, Dana interviews Liz Miracle from Origin, an inclusive pelvic floor-focused physical therapy practice, to talk about pelvic floor dysfunction and gut health troubleshooting. We cover the main signs and symptoms of pelvic floor dysfunction, why most women don't seek care for PFD, the pelvic floor and endometriosis connection, and the types of clients they see the most at Origin who feel the most benefit from pelvic floor PT. We also talk about how to check in with your pelvic floor and exercises that you can do beyond kegels to support things like pelvic floor dysfunction and just regular pelvic floor health as well. If you've been enjoying our episodes and you want even more bonus content, don't forget to check out our Patreon community for only $5 a month to get access to seven plus months of bonus episodes, action steps, and resources to help you integrate recommendations from our episodes into your life in a non-restrictive way. Check it out at patreon.com slash wholeheartedeating. Okay, so where I wanted to start was you all have this great uh, quote in one of the captions. And this is, I like to do a pretty extensive research before we record. All right, But this is about only from, I think, a month or a month and a half ago. And you had this statistic that said every year in the U.S., 40 million women and individuals with vaginal anatomy suffer from pelvic floor dysfunction, but only a fraction of us seek care for our life-disrupting symptoms, in part because we're used to a medical system that routinely dismisses or ignores our pelvic pain and discomfort. And if we do seek care, there are less than 10,000 pelvic floor PTs in practice and very few take insurance, which then translates to long wait times or driving hours to get to a clinic. So... Thank you for doing what you do and welcome to the podcast, Liz. <laughs> Aw, thank you. Although that feels a little depressing to hear to start off with, you know, in well, terms of the lack of resources available for people, but it is true. And I think it's important that you get that information out there so that people understand they're not alone in what they're experiencing and also in their struggle trying to find somebody. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't, because this is a quote, women's issue, and there's not a Mm -hmm. lot of research on many of the conditions that you can use pelvic floor PT to treat. I mean, it really wasn't until, because I don't have kids, and the last couple of years, I mean, the only way that I had started hearing about pelvic floor PT was through friends who were using it for pregnancy and postpartum and everything like that. But we know that pelvic floor dysfunction can happen to so many more people than people. And of course, people with, you know, pregnancy and postpartum and kids will struggle with a lot of pelvic floor stuff, but it goes so far beyond that too. So I was wondering if you could start by talking about what is pelvic floor dysfunction in the first place for people who don't know? And what are the kind of main signs and symptoms to look out for? Sure. So it basically means that your pelvic floor is not functioning in the way that we would expect it to. And your pelvic floor is the group of muscles sitting at the base of the pelvis that support your pelvic organs and functions like um, bowel movements, being able to go to the bathroom, to urinate, sex, um, and then of course your uterus, 
that helps you carry a baby um, and then the prostate and people with uh, natal male anatomy. Um, and when those muscles are not functioning correctly, they can kind of go wrong in a number of ways. So I think a lot of people think about peeing your pants is one of the primary ways that we think of pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, and in that case, your pelvic floor muscles are not being able to generate enough force to kind of close off the urethra and then urine gets out. Um, but what people don't always understand is that can happen in different ways. So you can have your muscles actually be really loose and weak. So they're just kind of like too, too weak to really get the force to close around the urethra. And in other cases, we have muscles that are too tight and weak, meaning that they're so tight. Like if you think of your fist being closed for a really, really long time, or like your arm was in a cast, um, when you took that cast off, your muscles wouldn't necessarily be strong. They'd probably be very weak if there anybody who's ever had a cast on, right? And then you try to go do something like, like lift a barbell, your muscles can't do it, but your arm is kind of stuck in that position because of the cast. And if your hand has been in a fist for a really long time, you can't really squeeze it any harder. So you can't really generate the force that you need to be able to get the urethra um, uh, closure that you need. And that can happen um, in lots of different ways and affect lots of different functions around the pelvic floor, whether it's sex, bowel movements, um, or if you have pain conditions. So if you have a diagnosis um, like endometriosis um, that causes discomfort and pain, then the body can kind of react by creating tension to, it's, it's doing it almost in a way to protect you, but then that can have an effect of creating more discomfort and pain. So pelvic floor dysfunction is not any one particular thing that's happening. It could be a host of different symptoms that come together that could be happening for different reasons, um, whether you're tight and weak or whether you're loose and weak. Yeah, definitely. And it's so interesting to think about, you know, we would commonly think, oh, if someone's too tight, then there's no way that they would be having these issues. But it's the way that you, <laughs> the analogy that you gave makes so much sense, right? So can you talk about also what are some of the main reasons that women don't seek care for pelvic floor dysfunction? Oh, I think this goes deep. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, we go deep on this podcast, so go as deep yeah, as you want. <laughs> I, I, you know, I have a five-year-old uh, daughter. And so from very early on, I've been working to um, educate her on what the name of her anatomy is, that she can speak to it, um, and helping to explain to her, like when she's, if I see her on the toilet pooping, like, oh, honey, like, let's put a stool underneath your feet. And and are you feeling like you're having to grunt a lot to get your poop out? Because really, we don't want you to have to grunt so much to get your poop out. It sounds to me like maybe you haven't been drinking enough water at school. Um, and kind of putting that that information, making it available to people when they're really young so that it becomes something that they're used to talking about. And, you know, much to my chagrin, my daughter right now is in a phase where she loves talking about uh genital anatomy, <laughs> no matter where we are. Um, and butts and poop and all of it is very exciting to her. I think that's normal for anybody her age right now. But, um, but you know, at, at least what I'm, what I'm excited about for her is that she's not embarrassed to talk about it. And for so many of us growing up, our parents have said like, oh, sh sh don't, don't say that in public. We don't talk about that. Um, that's private. We don't, we don't show people that we don't touch it. We don't, you know, it, there's a lot of no's and don'ts around our pelvis. And that can create shame for people. And for anybody who's listened to Brene Brown, shame is very complex and deep and can have a lot of effects as a result. And if you were to ask me, why aren't people seeking care? I think that that would probably be, um, it would be shame and a lack of education around what it is. And then also the gaslighting that you mentioned earlier. So, um, 
I teach at UCSF Medical Center in the PT program. And one of the things I start out with is, you know, hey, I know that most of the people in this PT program are not interested in being pelvic floor PTs. So if, if you don't want to hear anything else I have to say today, that's fine. But the one thing I want you to know is that because you're a trusted healthcare professional that spends so much time with your patients, even if it's for a knee injury or something else, they feel like they trust you and they may tell you something that they wouldn't tell anybody else, right? They may say, oh, hey, by the way, you know, I know my knee's been hurting, but I also leak urine when I run, or they may want to divulge to you that they're actually also having painful sex. Um, and if you tell that patient, oh, well, I don't know what that could be about. Like you, you should go find help somewhere else. It makes them feel really othered. And like, they're the only person that you've ever talked to that's brought that symptom up and there must be something wrong with them. Um, or if they go to a physician and the physician says, I don't see anything wrong with you. Um, it can stop their ability to continue to seek care. Um, that could, I don't know. Are we allowed? I was like, let's just go into to talking. I was like, I just, just segues into another story I have. Oh which yeah. Is, Wherever you want to go. Is okay, fine cool. with me. <laughs> I was like, cool. Um, that's actually like one of the reasons I got into pelvic health is my best friend in college uh, became an obstetrician. And when she was in her uh, she's in her medical school program. She said, Hey Liz, I just saw this woman. And she said, she's having painful sex and I did an exam and I can't find anything wrong. Um, and, but her response was to call me and say, Hey, I know you, you know, you're, you're a physical therapist. Do you know anything about this? Did you learn anything about this in physical therapy school? And I said, you know, yeah, there was one person who came into the lecture, like what I do now. <laughs> I was going to say that you now. Said, <laughs> that's me now. Um, and they mentioned that there are PTs out there that do that. And you should go find one of those PTs for your patient. Um, and she called me four days later and said, I can't find anybody. And so I think that that's part of the struggle too, is that if you do get a provider that cares and isn't gaslighting you, um, and making you feel like you're different and you're one of the only people who has this issue, they may then struggle to find a referral for you for someone to go see. Um, and that was kind of the jumping off point for me into this was, you know, and then she said, you do it. <laughs> I was like, Whoa, okay, well, your patient's in Ohio, and I'm in Colorado. So I'm not really <laughs> sure how I'm gonna be able to, and it's gonna take me years to learn this stuff. Um, but I understood what she meant was that this is this is a problem because it's an underserved area. Um, and, you know, she was like, it'll be great, we'll be working in the same field. And, you know, go off into the sunset together, uh, which was really sweet and lovely. And it's <laughs> the reason why I'm here now, which is great. But um, yeah, I think it's like, there's that other piece of it, which is not just the shame, the lack of education, and the gaslighting, but the lack of resources. So um, we don't really actually know how many pelvic floor therapists are in the US. That's a pretty good guess that came to us um, by talking to different people and different organizations and seeing how many therapists they had registered in their organizations. Um, and it might even be, it might even be a lofty number. There might not even be 10,000. Um, so it's, it, that can be hard too. If you're someone who's having issues and you go online and you try to look for help and you're not finding anybody in your geographical area, it makes you feel even more like what you've got going on is rare or maybe not real or maybe in your head. Yeah. It's really tough because you know, I specialize in GI. And so one of the first things that I'll say on, you know, a session with people is like, 
I know that normally you probably don't talk a lot about this stuff, but nothing is TMI <laughs> here, right? Um, and that kind of, I find, helps establish a little bit more of a safe space around things that mm-hmm. aren't talked about in public. You know, like we don't talk about politics, we don't talk about religion, we don't talk about poop, right? Or we don't talk about our pelvic floor function, mm-hmm. right? So um, one of the things that I wanted to really draw attention to is I love how you all really, you mentioned that you offer treatment for areas of every stage of life, right? But then you also are a come-as-you-are practice. And I think this is so important in creating a safe space because you all are working with a very vulnerable area. And we know that if you do any studies on, this is for the uh, listeners, I'm sure you've done this. <laughs> if you do any research into the nervous system and the way that body the body stores trauma and emotions and everything like that, that's a very vulnerable area, right? If Even if you're not sure. doing any internal exams or work or anything like that, it's kind of like, Uh, I don't know how comfortable I am letting someone else even navigate around that area. So can you talk about how you try to create that safe space for people in order to promote an environment of healing? Absolutely. That's actually one of our taglines. If you keep going through our Instagram, at some point you'll find um, there's no TMI at origin. (laughs) Um, But I I do think it comes from working through a trauma-informed lens and ensuring that you are thinking about who you're working with through that lens all the time. So it comes down to even small things about like, how are you asking about um, their sexuality or their gender or their anatomy in your paperwork? Um, Are you asking them uh, what their pronouns are? So not what their preferred pronouns are, what their pronouns are. And um, are you asking them about trauma experiences that they've had in the past and providing support for them in that way? So Have you had medical trauma? Does me wearing a white coat trigger something for you? Are there words that I can say to you, like relax, that actually trigger you and can make things worse for you? Um, And kind of giving people that opportunity to have the conversation with you around what makes them feel comfortable so that you can provide that space for them. Um, And a lot of that is happening. It's not only happening in that one-to-one relationship um, with the patient in the room, but it it happens from the moment you walk in the door, right? Like if, if I walk in the door, if I walk up to you and say, Hey, I'm Liz, I'm going to be your PT today. My pronouns are she, her. Um, I, you know, how would you like for me to say your name? Oh my, you know, my name is Dana or Dana or however you want to say it. Um, and then coming back into the room and giving them that chance one more time. And then also signaling to them that it's a safe space. So, you know, on my computer, I have like a picture of the trans flag and a a rainbow on the back of my computer. And I feel like that helps people when they see my computer open facing them, um, that they can talk to me about um, issues around sex that they're having in a non-judgmental atmosphere that helps them understand that um, if you talk to me about something that would maybe be considered taboo and like you said, like out in a public park, like I'm not going to raise an eyebrow at all. Um, And of course, there might be things I haven't heard of that are new to me, but I'm going to be curious about it and want to learn how that affects you physically and how we can incorporate that into your plan of care. Yeah, definitely. It's so important. So can you talk a little bit more about what are either the most common types of conditions that you see in pelvic floor PT or the types of conditions where you see your clients having the most success and benefits from Mm. doing pelvic floor PT? Wow. So I think that probably 
where public floor therapists see the most patients are going to be like in two realms. We probably see a lot of urinary incontinence. And that's simply because like you said, people have more access to the knowledge around urinary leakage. So, oh, my friend had a baby. She's talking about how she peed her pants. Now I have access to that knowledge. I know that that's a thing. So our numbers are going to skew that direction because the population gets more information in that direction, right? Not necessarily because we have more people who are leaking urine, just more people who leak urine understand how to connect those pieces together. Oh, leaking urine is a pelvic floor thing. We go to pelvic floor PT and more doctors are aware of it. So they're able to refer better. Um, but I would say we see a lot of pain conditions, a lot of pain conditions. Um, and that generally wraps itself up into other types of issues like constipation or a difficulty with like frequent urination, urinary urgency. It's usually a cluster of symptoms that come together and not just one. Um, and I think people sometimes don't understand when they come in for like urinary leaking while we start asking a lot of questions about sex or bowel movements. And it's because more than more than not, they have another issue that's going on that they didn't realize was related to their pelvic floor that we need to address in order to be able to address them as a whole person. Um, and then you asked, what about where do people see success? Um, I think where we see a lot of success right off the bat is um, with behavioral interventions. So just giving people information, it doesn't necessarily mean it's one condition or another, but even just after the first visit, I've had people say like, oh my God, I'm 50% better. Like you, my last name is Miracle. So they're like, you waved, a, you did a miracle. I'm like, I didn't do a miracle. I just gave you information that you didn't have before. You didn't know that going to the bathroom every 30 minutes wasn't good. And you were afraid to try to hold it any longer because someone told you down the road that you were gonna get a kidney infection if you held your urine. So you've been going to the bathroom every single time you've gotten an urge your entire life. And now you're in this situation where you can't go to a movie. And if I give them the knowledge and then the permission to try something new and they do it, it can be life-changing for them. Um, so, you know, I, I, and I, that's kind of a plug I have too for virtual physical therapy. I know that there's a lot of, um, people that feel like, oh, you have to have your hands on somebody. Um, and I do think in some instances that is absolutely true and a wonderful adjunct to virtual care. But, um, coming back to that theme of helping people feel safe, I've had patients see me for virtual sessions who told me that they never would have gone to an in-person session because it feels too unsafe for them to lock themselves in a room, you know, so to say with a provider where they feel like they might be out of control. Whereas if they're on a virtual call, they can just, they can just hang up. They're in their own house. They feel safe. They can do that. Um, and virtual and the virtual world also really lends itself to being able to provide a lot of education um, and behavioral advice for people. Yeah. One uh, benefit of the situation that the world has been in the couple of the last couple of years is like, oh, virtual is a more accepted thing and we can get education out mm -hmm. to more people. Um, speaking of that, right, and talking about constipation and the pelvic floor um, and everything like that, I think it's so interesting when you mention, you know, people are like, oh, well, you know, I have either incontinence or like frequent urination or anything. And then there's so much of a connection to constipation or GI stuff. I think one of the biggest things that I see in GI is that people don't know the difference between what's normal for them and what's optimal for their body, right? And especially with something like constipation, people are like, oh, I don't have any straining, you know, it's not pellets or anything, so it can't be constipation when really it's like, well, 
the reason that we have bowel movements is not just so you don't strain, right? It's so we're eliminating things that the body is done with and we don't necessarily want to reabsorb those because then that, that can cause issues if things are staying in the colon for too long. And so I would love to talk a little bit more about, <laughs> here we go, GI, everyone's like, oh, poop. Dana's talking about poop again. <laughs> here we go, right? Yeah. So let's talk more about the relationship between <laughs> bowel movements and your pelvic floor. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> yes, I, my husband <laughs> has to like try to get me to stop talking about poop at the dinner table. I'll, I'll never forget. I was in New York visiting family and I had to, I had a virtual call with my gastroenterologist and we were in a park having just come off of the like tour for the Statue of Liberty. And I sat down, I was like, yeah, I, I know I'm describing my poop in detail to my gastroenterologist. And there's this woman sitting about three feet from me on a bench and she just gives me this like, like <laughs> look. And I was like, she doesn't like it. She can just move on, I guess. <laughs> I was like, this is, or maybe she'll start to ask some questions and get her own gastroenterologist. We'll see. Um, but yeah, so the, the pelvic floor is very intimately tied to how we poop. Um, and if any of your listeners have ever seen the squatty potty uh, unicorn rainbow sherbet poop commercial <laughs> online, if you haven't, go YouTube it. It's pretty funny. It's also... Um, my daughter loves it. She thinks it's hilarious. But uh, Squatty Potty is basically a stool that you put at the base of your toilet. It's a branded one. You don't have to buy the brand Squatty Potty. Um, but you just get your feet up on a stool, and get them a little bit higher so that your knees are in flexion. And when that happens, it helps to put your pelvis in a more optimal position to actually get your stool out. Um, and this doesn't work for everybody. For some people, it, it is a little bit more challenging. It depends on your height, um, right, and your leg length. But for the average person, getting a stool underneath your feet is really helpful. And if we think about a lot of other cultures, they poop squatting over their toilet, right? I'm sure you probably talked about this on your podcast before. <laughs> um, but we do have one of the muscles in the pelvis is called the puborectalis muscle. And this muscle, if you know where your pubic bone is in the front of your body, it's like a little sling. So it starts on your pubic bone inside of your body, and it slings around your rectum and comes back to your pubic bone. So it's like slingshotting around. And most of the time that muscle is, has enough tone in it that it actually creates an angle in your rectum so that the, stoop can, the, the stool can't get out. When that muscle relaxes and gets longer, so that loop lengthens and creates a little bit of space around your rectum, it allows the rectum to be a little bit more straight and less angled, and then the poop can slide out. So if that muscle is too tight, all of the time, it can really cause your stool to kind of back up and sit in the rectum and not come out. Um, similarly, if it's too loose, then the stool is going to hit the anus and be sitting down near the anus. The anus's job, the anus, it has so many jobs. It's <laughs> wonderful. Um, one of its job, there are two muscles um, that we think of in the anus with, with the sphincter, which are the internal anal sphincter muscle and the external anal sphincter muscle. The external anal sphincter muscle is the one that we can squeeze to tighten to kind of keep gas back. Or if we tighten it, it sends a signal and kind of pushes the stool back up the tube past the puborectalis muscle, that sling muscle, so that the angle can be created and the stool can sit back up there. And we want that to happen if we're on a ferry to the Statue of Liberty and we don't have a bathroom that we can go in. <laughs> it's like now is not an appropriate time to go poop. So let's push the stool back up. And then later the stool will kind of, the puborectalis will relax and the stool will come back down to the anus. Um, and the internal anal sphincter muscle does what we call a sampling reflex. So it kind of samples, hmm, are you solid? Are you gas or are you liquid? 
how urgent is this? And then it sends a signal to the brain and it says, you know, um, this is pretty urgent. <laughs> I think this is liquid. You better find a toilet. Uh, right now, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to push this back up the mm-hmm. tube. And then you go find a, you go find a toilet. Um, but when that sampling reflex is disrupted, it can cause issues for people. Like we've talked about sharks, you know, so if anybody accidentally thought it was a fart and it wasn't, this is one of my daughter's favorite uh, phrases to say is never trust a fart mom. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, things can happen if you <laughs> trust your fart <laughs> and think that it's actually uh, gas when it's not gas. Um, but that's, that's kind of the role that those muscles are playing in, in normal function, if that makes sense. Yeah. So basically then when those things get disrupted, it's like, Oh, Mm -hmm. never trust a fart. Which way are we going here? (laughs) Never trust a fart. And also there's a lot of people who think that they're relaxing or helping their stool exit. And in reality, they're tightening and squeezing their muscles and pushing the stool back up the tube. Um, and that's called, uh, that's basically, uh, it's called paradoxical relaxation. So it's where people think they're trying to relax, but they're actually not relaxing. And, um, that's where gastroenterologists can play a helpful role is in doing tests where they can put like barium in the stool and actually sit you on a toilet and do imaging and see what are your muscles doing when you're trying to relax? Are you pushing the stool back up? Or are you actually relaxing? Is it happening where your anus is? pinching it off or, you know, or is your pupil rectalis squeezing and pushing up higher? So those tests could be helpful in helping us understand what is actually happening on the toilet, but a good physical therapist can usually kind of see what's happening when they're doing an exam and may even ask you to show them your posture on a toilet um, and help you try to figure out what the pieces are that are missing. Um, I've seen People do all kinds of things. Um, people get really creative when it comes to trying to help them get their stool out. And, you know, I've if I've had people tell me that they make a nest on the ground with toilet paper and then squat over the ground to get their stool out, even if they're in a public restroom. Um, I've had people who basically do a lap press on the toilet with their arms and push their whole body up and try to get their stool out. Um, some people, which we actually recommend this sometimes to have them turn around backwards on the toilet and rest their body on the top of the toilet so that they can go. That of course means you have to take off your, all of your pants to do it because yeah. <laughs> you can't turn yourself backwards around on the toilet without taking your pants off fully. Um, but you know, it's, I think a lot of people that, and to your point too, like, why are people not seeking care? Maybe they found something that they think works for them. Mm-hmm. So they're just going to continue to use that thing that they think works without asking themselves is this what's really best for my body? Yeah. So can you give another example of, let's say someone's coming in with constipation, um, and I'm sure you won't be able to describe this fully because we're not recording the video, right? But can you give an example of what's one of the tools that you may encourage someone to do, let's say, if they come to you after mm-hmm. <laughs> having this, you're listening to this episode, um, or another pelvic floor physical therapist, what are some of the things that you may recommend to someone with constipation? Fluid intake. So half your body weight in ounces in terms of water intake, um, looking at what your diet is. So this is all your stuff, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so this is, this is, and, and, and I, you know, I do it at a very basic level. It's like, make sure you're drinking enough water oh, your entire diet is bananas, rice, apples, and toast. That's probably not great because that's what we give people who are having liquidy stooled in order to store to make their stool more formed. That's called the brat diet. I'm sure you've 
discuss that at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, if that's primarily what you're eating, you might be more constipated, but yet here they are thinking like, Oh, I've, I, but I'm getting, you know, I'm eating all these healthy things with fiber. And it's like, but it's not necessarily the right kind of fiber. So talking to them about the difference between soluble and insoluble fiber um, and how that might show up in their diet. And then the elevating the feet on the stool. And <clears throat> if you get the call to poop, so if you, if you feel that urge, try not to defer it because the more that you defer it and push that stool back up in the tube, the more your body, like you said before, the more your body's going to start drawing um, that content back into the body. And a lot of times that's water content. So the body's reabsorbing the water and it's just going to get firmer and harder and harder to pass out of the body. Um, so those are some very basics, but also teaching them breathing techniques that can help them to ease the stool out um, while they're on the toilet. And, um, you know, that's, that is off the top of my head, the beginning of it, but, um, and also the Bristol stool chart, that's something that we show our patients and ask them, you know, where do you fall on the Bristol stool chart? If you're a PT and you've ever had a good poop in a public bathroom, you'll be like over the stall to your friend. I just had a four. It was great. Um, but yeah, basically, basically you want to see your poop somewhere between the three and the four on the Bristol stool chart should, should look like a nice, um, sausage. It's not too, not too many cracks in the sausage. It's formed. It's not floating. It has a brown color. Um, so just giving them that information is sometimes helpful. And then they can kind of take that on to somebody else who might be able to dive in deeper. If just that bit of information doesn't get them where they need to be. Definitely. And then Talking about another kind of condition that has a huge connection between GI dysfunction or suboptimal function and then also chronic pain. So when we are recording this, it is the last few days of Endometriosis Awareness Month. Um, And I would love if you could talk about how pelvic floor PT has just recently (laughs) been found to be a promising new treatment option for endo. Sure. Endometriosis is vicious. Uh, it can show up anywhere. It can show up in your gums and your teeth, and it can show up along your rectum. It can show up on the lining of your bladder. So it is, it is, does not discriminate. And it also does not discriminate, um, based on sex. So we have patients who are, um, born as men who are, who also have, um, I should say are born with natal, uh, male genitals also have endometriosis. Um, even though we don't necessarily see it there as much. Um, And physical therapy can be helpful in the fact that we're not curing the endometriosis itself, right? Like I can't go in and excise that endo that's happening um, in your your pelvis or wherever it's happening. But there are so many cumulative effects from pain. Um, The body really likes to guard. If anybody's ever had like a shoulder injury and felt their muscles kind of tighten up around their neck or in their back, or they've gotten like a knot in their back, the abdomen and the pelvic floor can do the same thing. So if you go to place your hands um, on somebody in their belly that has had endometriosis, you might find that it feels just like a hard rock, right? And most people want rock hard abs, not in that way, right? Um, Or their pelvic floor will be just so extremely tight because the body is trying to protect and guard. The body doesn't understand that that protecting and guarding when it's done for too long actually causes harm and chronic conditions. So with physical therapy, we can go in with that musculature and kind of teach the muscles like, no, you're in a state of alarm. You don't need to be in a state of alarm all the time. We can help calm you 
um, get you to function a little bit more pop properly where there's a little bit more range of motion there, right? So the other thing is that you want your, be, your body to be able to have full range of motion and not just be stuck in a tight position all the time. Um, and once you can kind of get that fascia moving, those soft tissue structures, the muscles a little more pliable, a little more soft, and the person understanding how to relax into those muscles a little bit better or release into those muscles a little bit better, um, it can really drop your, your levels of pain. Um, so again, we're not doing anything to the endo itself, but we're treating the person as a whole person and that can bring it down. And then we also have tricks around vagus nerve stimulation and calming the body. So the vagus nerve is really responsible for um, upregulating and downregulating our nervous system. So if we see a tiger and we get really scared and we run a runoff, like we feel the need to, to go run it. Okay. Now we're going to pump blood to our extremities. We're going to run, we're going to do this. Right. Um, but with endometriosis or a pain condition like that, you can't be in that state all of the time. Um, it's, it's not healthy. It affects things like your sleeve. It affects your pain. So stimulating the vagus nerve can create that, um, basically the down regulation of the body and the calming. Um, so giving people the tools to be able to tap into that and to notice their heart rate variability. So there are wearables and apps that can show you where your heart rate variability is. Um, when your heart rate variability is high, that's a good thing. That means that your heart and your body are able to adapt quickly to traumatic scenarios or, or issues where we would normally be like, oh my, you know, oh, you scared me. Oh, it was just a cat. Okay, I'm not in danger. Um, it's not a lion. And your body can quickly go back into that relaxed space. Um, but if your body is having a hard time getting back into that relaxed space, you got scared by something in the bushes and your heart rate is still going and you can't get yourself to calm down for a really long period of time, that's considered low heart rate variability. And we actually know, um, you know, we can educate our patients too about their exercise habits. So if you are having a day or a morning where the app is telling you your heart rate variability is low, meaning that you cannot adapt as well, probably not a good time to go do a HIIT exercise routine because you're just going to increase your nervous system's excitedness. It's going to be harder for you to get into a place of calm. Um, you want to do those really hard type hit exercises when your heart rate variability is high and you can adapt to it, come out of the exercise and bring yourself back down. If you're having low heart rate variability, we're not saying don't exercise. We're just saying maybe exercise in a way that's more of a steady state exercise. Like you can go for a slow jog or a slow swim. Don't, don't go into that high intensity interval training during that time. Yeah. I love heart rate variability. I want to do an entire episode or probably series on it because it's so interesting. And I find that, you know, as long as it's not triggering, because a lot of people in our audience have a history of eating disorders and disordered eating, um, and any kind of wearable could be, you know, and some kind of triggering, but I find that it's actually mm -hmm. a really great way to match tuning in with the way that your body is feeling without any wearables to objective data, right? It's like, hey, here's what your body is doing. And then what we can start to do is like, oh, well, you know, maybe you thought you were like, oh, yeah, I had, you know, planned this workout or this thing or whatever it was. And your body's like, ah, 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 not today. And you're like, well, maybe I could still do it. And then you have the data and you're like, oh, no, I really, <laughs> this would not be the best day <laughs> to do listen. this. Yes, exactly. And it's a way to, you know, check in and really start to strengthen the muscle of meeting your body where you are as well, which I find is really, really helpful. Um, so speaking of checking in and meeting your body where you are, 
Can you talk about how to check in with your pelvic floor if people have never heard about how to do this before? Oh, nice. Um, first of all, I mean, I think a lot of people say, oh, go see if you can stop your flow of urine on the toilet, right? So if you're peeing, can you tighten your muscles enough to stop your flow of urine? That would help you just kind of have an idea of where they are, right? So like, oh, okay, now I, I get, I get what they mean. I've, I've been interrupted before when I was peeing and I've had to like kind of stop and clench. And so that gives you an idea of where they are, but I do not recommend that you do that over and over again. I've, I've seen textbooks that suggest that you do your kegels or your public floor exercises on the toilet while you're peeing. Um, that is actually very disruptive to your, um, the center of your brain that controls your urine. So don't do that repeatedly as an exercise, but if there's people out there that are just like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, it's those muscles. When you stop the urine cool right now, I have an idea of what that is. So that's one way you can figure it out. Um, if you, have a penis, I will describe it for you as saying it's the muscles that you would clench to kind of lift the penis up like an elephant trunk. So you could kind of feel that motion. Um, but oftentimes I like for people to get a little more intimate with themselves. So you can just start by laying on your back with your legs in a comfortable position. So if that means um, a couple of pillows beneath your knees or your legs open in the diamond supported with pillows, and then placing, starting at the very beginning with placing one hand on your chest, and one hand on your belly. And I know this isn't the pelvic floor, but it leads you into the pelvic floor. So starting with your breath and seeing if you can get most of your breath into your belly. So letting your belly rise and fall so that there's less chest movement and more rising and falling of the belly. So when you breathe in, the belly should expand and fill up like a balloon. And when you breathe out, it should come back down to baseline. Once you've got that, you can take the hand off of your chest and place it over your genitals. So what you're really trying to aim to feel is the space between your anus and either your vagina or your penis. So that's called the perineum and that's the muscle that you wanna be able to feel. And you can just put a flat hand over it. You can have your clothing on. It doesn't have to be under your clothes. Um, and you wanna continue that breath. And really what this should feel like is that balloon in your stomach is not just happening in your stomach, it's 360 degrees. So that means that that balloon is not just expanding up into your tummy, it's also expanding down between your legs. So when you inhale and feel your hand rise at your stomach, you should also feel a gentle downward movement into your hand at the perineum. And then when you exhale, that should come back to baseline. Now, if you have a tight pelvic floor, you're not gonna feel that at all because your pelvic floor is, doesn't have that stretch and that ability to go into that motion. It's going to be up high and tight. And if you have a really, really loose pelvic floor, it may already be down in that, that lower area that you would be breathing into. So when you breathe into it, you don't feel that much more downward motion. Um, so if you have one of those conditions, it may be harder for you to actually feel anything. And then that would be my first inclination to you to understand like, oh, I can't stop my urine or I can't feel what's happening in my perineum when I'm doing this breath work, um, probably means you're not very connected to your pelvic floor. And that's not a bad thing. It's just your, your current state and that you could use some help and we could get you to a place where that could be functioning better. 
What's so interesting is when you were just describing those physical states, my brain was immediately going to the nervous system and how it reacts to certain things, right? So when you're describing like, oh, you're so tight, you're not going to be able to do anything. Are you chronically activated in the nervous system, right? For sure. (laughs) Do you have low heart rate variability, which means that you're unable to get out of that sympathetic state? And then on the other hand, are you too loose? Are you in ventral vagal, right? Are you in dorsal and you're just like in a freeze state and you can't do anything? That was just... Mm. where my brain was going so fascinating well yeah because we're whole people yes we're whole people yes and we can't you know that's what I find is um frustrating about the current way that our medical system is set up in this country is that everything is so segmented right it's like oh you have GI issues go to a gastroenterologist but then they're like oh you're fine you just have IBS and you've been to your primary care and then you're like oh well maybe go to your endocrinologist or maybe go to your OBGYN or something like that and then The practices where like, you know, pelvic floor PT or going to see a functional dietitian or nutritionist or somebody who's going to be able to put a lot of the pieces together. Most of us are not covered by insurance. We may offer sliding scale or something like that, but it's so hard to get that kind of care accessible to everybody who needs it. So I just wanted to say thank you to you all (laughs) for all of the hard work that you're doing because I know it's not easy to be in this field and it's not easy for people to find us or, you know, have the confidence to go see someone like us as well. Um, So just so all the listeners know, this is a safe space. Just come as you are, bring yourselves, and we'll be here to meet you where you are. Absolutely. Thank you for what you do as well. (laughs) Thanks so much. Well, so Liz, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing all this wealth of knowledge with people. I'm sure they will have follow-up questions and maybe we can do a follow-up episode because I know there's so much more we could talk about other conditions and everything like that. But um, please everybody, let everybody know where they can find you, where they can find origin and everything like that. Sure. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Um, Yeah. So if you go to our website, theoriginway.com. You can check out and see where we have locations near you. And we are actually launching national virtual um, next month. So no matter, and I wouldn't say no matter where you are, but in most states in the United States, we'll be able to work with you virtually. So you can check us out there. We have a blog. We have lots of helpful information that you can read there um, to see if we're the right place for you. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for coming on. Thank you. Have a great day. Hey friends, it's Dana, and thanks so much for listening to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast today. Find us on social media at Wholehearted Eating Pod on Instagram and at wholeheartedeating.com for more information about working with Dana and Christina for one-on-one nutrition counseling. If you love the show, we would love you forever if you share an episode with your family and friends or tag us on social media or leave a five-star rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts to help more people find the show. Check out patreon.com slash wholeheartedeating to help support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, bonus episodes with us and our guests, episode discussions, new resources we're creating for Patreon, and so much more. If you have questions for us, feedback on the show, potential topics or guests you'd love to have on, shoot us an email at hello at wholeheartedeating.com and we'll see you next week.